It is show notes. Sitting here with 99 in the studio on a balmy afternoon post-Memorial Day. 99, how you feeling today? A little tired. Why? Three-day weekend. Three-day weekend. You were on the road a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You recovered, or you ready for this, or do you want to just skip it this week? Yeah, why don't we just stop right here? Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll catch you this weekend. Bye. We're going to jump right into it because show notes is getting out of control. Needless to say, it was an eventful week, week and a half, two weeks. It's been a, an eventful life, let's just say, here in dear old America. So much going on. Most of what we've gotten a response to, by the way, this week will be relative to the student debt episode, the recession episode, a little bit of our topical cream on the school shooting but we're going to try and keep it as focused as we possibly can. Needless to say, there's not much more that we can add to the discourse around gun violence in this country, the lack of coordinated action. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens this summer. We have an interesting episode coming up this week that is all about pending legislation that we're anxious to dig into. But on this, at this moment in time, on legislation that any normal person at least would think would be relatively easy, which would be to implement some sort of some sort of legislation that, you know, moves the gun reform debate forward in a positive, constructive way that honors now so many dead and wounded children in this country. But, you know, not optimistic in, in that regard. But we have a lot of other things to get to today. We will try to plot through it as best we can. And we're going to begin with emails. The first one here from our buddy, Pethan in Pittsburgh. Here are some questions in hopes to bring this episode closer to earthly politics. What's your opinion of Janet Yellen slash Jerome Powell? Who would be the best people or best policies to be in charge of that shit? I like starting with this one because the Federal Reserve, depending upon where you are in the political spectrum, is a flashpoint. So as we covered in our libertarian episodes, as an example, there is a significant chunk of the libertarian movement that would like to abolish the Fed altogether. The Fed that has been around since, I believe, 1913. So talking about an organization that predates the Great Depression, that predates the Roaring Twenties, wasn't something that came up as a policy response or a measure in response to the Great Depression, as so many of the reforms that involve banking and the Treasury did. You're talking about a more foundational element of our governance over money as a whole. I am not in the abolish the Fed camp. I do think that the Federal Reserve plays a rather significant role. I don't think it's as big as some people give it credit for just because of the moves that they do take, which is different than the potential that they have. And I'll get to the specifics of Pethan's question about, you know, who should be leading it? What do we think of the, the policies with this Fed in particular? But much of the debate surrounding the Fed is, is well, what do they do and, and do we need it? I'm of the opinion that the Fed does have an integral role in managing our economy more so today probably than even at its inception because 
we are the center of the global financial universe. So what the Fed does does have a tremendous impact on what other countries do in relation to, you know, the moves that we make. The Federal Reserve, as we know, coming out of the episode that we just did on recessions, has a few tools at its disposal, interest rates being the one that is most often looked at. So getting to Pethan's question, Janet Yellen in a low interest rate environment, Bernanke actually implementing it on the heels of the financial crisis, and now Jerome Powell, who is, by the way, no slouch. Jerome Powell has a very storied history, and there's uh, there's actually a few pieces that have been done on Powell that talk about how, yes, he's a creature of the system, but the reason he rose to such prominence in the Fed is because he was always seen as the quote-unquote deal maker, the person that could get things done. And it's interesting to see that not only did he survive the threats, the onslaught of threats that came from the Trump administration, and some people think that he actually played too much into Trump's hands, but he's also survived now into the Biden administration. I don't hear really anything about him going anywhere in the immediate, although that can obviously change. So is he a continuation of Janet Yellen? I would say for the most part, it seems so. Janet Yellen still obviously has a very prominent position within the government as well. So there's continuity there between multiple administrations, of course. Keeping a low interest rate environment since the financial crisis has had a few intended and unintended consequences. I think it was a good thing. If you were looking to salvage the financial system after the collapse, it was absolutely essential that interbank lending was next to zero. To me, it was almost criminal that the banks were allowed to participate in sort of legal arbitrage, though, and be able to just pack on in treasuries after borrowing at next to zero rates. So they were guaranteed to make money on their money. I think that that went on for way too long. But the upside of that is that it did allow a lot of Americans to refinance. What was missing from that equation is sort of an, a, a legislative policy that overlaid the Fed's zero interest rate policy, which would have curtailed the speculative behavior of the big banks that were then giving money to public companies that were then buying back their own stocks and just artificially inflating their own prices. That's the trap that the Federal Reserve is in right now. But in terms of managing the economic crisis, which I still feel like we're in the, the long tail throes of that economic crisis. I think they did what they had to do. Rates should be a little bit higher as they are right now. They shouldn't move much further if we want average Americans to be able to continue climbing out of debt. But, you know, as far as the, the Fed's policy tools, there's too much emphasis on what they can do in the entire economy, as opposed to what their real job is, which is to keep the wheels of the financial markets turning. So I don't always pose them as the bad guys. But I do think that they they play a significant role. The other thing that is not looked at as much, which to me was more corrosive, was how much they allowed the big investment banks to continue with their speculative behavior in buying toxic assets and expanding the Fed's balance sheet. So expanding the Fed's balance sheet is them going out to the market and buying up bonds but it wasn't just U.S. bonds. It was also private corporate bonds. It was them providing liquidity into the system, sometimes very necessary because extreme volatility 
would put a pinch on overnight settlements as an example, and they would have to come into the rescue and provide liquidity through backdoor channels. I don't think that that got enough attention because even though banks had to keep a higher reserve, I think that they were still getting over their skis and acting in a manner that basically suggested that they understood that the Fed was always going to come to their rescue. So what I like about Powell right now is that he is gently, I think as best he can, signaling to the marketplace that that is coming to an end. And that's why you see that the markets are starting to deteriorate on the equity side as an example. What's puzzling, and I think puzzling to them and to everybody, is that the bond market is collapsing at the same time. Inflation is still wildly out of control. The big lesson from the recession piece that we did, by the way, was that raising interest rates 50 basis points, 75 basis points, whatever it is, is not going to curb inflation. To me, that's a head fake. I think that that's a red herring. I think that that is Powell understanding that that is going to have to work itself through, that this inflation is not necessarily transitory because corporations are acting in a fashion that is way too greedy. And the commodities markets have spun wildly out of control because I don't think anybody's really looking at those. So long story short, as if I can do that, the Fed, in terms of what it does and can do, I think has done a lot of good to keep the markets in check. The bigger problem is that too many people ascribe things to the Fed that it doesn't do. And we're not looking in the right places necessarily. And we have a comment in a little bit that talks about, oh, actually, excuse me, in our episode coming up on the weekend, we're going to talk a little bit about some potential bills that are sitting out there to curb price gouging and to curb the prices of commodities. And again, I don't think we're looking in the right places for those. There are very big structural regulatory changes that need to be made in order to to prevent corporations from contributing to inflation in the way that they have by packing on massive profits and then shifting the blame to prevent the commodities markets from spiraling out of control and taking advantage of headline narratives that really don't have anything to do with what's happening with the underlying investments themselves. So the Fed can do a lot. The Fed can't do everything. In terms of what it's been able to do, I think it's done a good job. But the places that people don't look because they're so focused on interest rates in particular is what the Fed does with its balance sheet to continue to buy the toxic bullshit assets that are sitting out there that really these banks should take responsibility for themselves. So I don't know whether that made any sense. It made sense in my head, but I think it's a really great question because any conversations about the Fed are typically reductive. There's people that are on the just abolish it altogether that actually don't understand how the global financial markets work. There are people that think the Fed is the enemy of the working class. There's some arguments to be made for that, but only if you're talking in sort of the absence of what it should do. So the Fed really can't do as much for the working class as people think it can do, but it has definitely done way too much for the banking class. Now that we are so many years past the financial crisis, these banks have to learn to kind of just ride it out on their own. And if they can't, then fuck them. They have to reduce their speculative activities. What's going to be so interesting over the next few years is that with a slightly increased interest rate environment, when things do normalize, and they will, and maybe we go into a mild recession, maybe we don't. On the other side of that, if rates come back up to normalcy, 
the equity markets shouldn't be as hot as they always have been. And that is going to be kind of a weird issue where the U.S. might, through the financial sector and the tech sector, might not be looking at the outsized, ridiculous gains that they've had relative to their price and earnings ratios that they've had over the last decade. They've had it easy. Their time is coming to a close. And I think Powell, you know, as much as I, I hate to give any one, you know, policy person too much credit, I think that he's done a decent job in getting ahead of it and taking this moment in time to use the red herring of inflation to signal to the banks that the free ride is over. There you go. And Mike V.S. said, your show helped me make the decision to run for the House of Representatives in a very red district. So don't be surprised if you see some of your ideas coming out of my campaign. I think that's just the coolest thing ever. Good luck to you. If you're in a very red district, I'm sure you already know what the challenges are. But you know what? That's why you play the game. That's why you run the race, because you just never know. Yeah, and I usually anonymize people, but if this person is running, Mike, will proudly say your name in full. If you have like a site or something, send us another email in, right? Yeah, we'll definitely promote it. Okay. Yeah. But then, of course, we're going to have to go look at your campaign platform. Yeah, I mean, if it's shit, we're going to tell you. <laughs> I might be, you know, mad at your website if it looks like shit also, so. That's just the designer. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we had some feedback from our topical cream, which I still hate saying, but this is from Thomas H., who said, I'm still drinking your coffee, and I'm really happy you have whole bean, which you're welcome. <laughs> you did prompt me to donate money to Jessica Cisneros' campaign, Looks like it came up short, but it was a good shot. I live in Dan Crenshaw's district, so my vote is pedo to you. My ocean remains cold. It's the worst acronym ever made up, and we realize now it was a stupid thing to do. It stands for pissing in the ocean to warm it up. It's time for pedo to you. Ah, Crenshaw. With his uh, 20 minutes of fame through Pete Davidson on Saturday Night Live. Mm. Cisneros campaign, not over. It might be over. I mean, it's all over, but for the counting, right? But it's not over. Hope, a hope beyond hope that that they had a good absentee campaign. To anybody thinking, here you go. Hey, Mike VS, even if you think you're tilting at windmills and running in a very red district, and to anybody else, this isn't the first email of somebody that's actually decided to run for office from listening to the show, which uh, really warms the cockles of my heart. Anybody that's thinking about doing it or getting involved or currently running a campaign, whatever it is, please don't sleep on an absentee campaign. Getting those mail-in ballots first and having a really good absentee strategy is essential to winning a campaign, especially in a, in a hard-fought district. Absentees all the way. I have some good personal anecdotes from, from the past about how dangerous those can be when you're not paying attention to them. But I promise you they can make the difference between having a really nice campaign that didn't work out and actually sitting in Congress and being part of the discussion. So now moving on, we have uh, some student debt episode emails going back a couple of episodes. Todd L. said, something that you said in post-show musings finally prompted me to write something I've been rolling around in my head. You mentioned both an American, quote, working class and the American propensity to close the door behind us. 
after one generation has gotten something. This closing the door behavior is why I would argue there's no American working class, but rather a working mass. I just wanted to pause on that to say that I loved that bit of writing very, very much. Thank you for that. Uh, now, Todd goes on to say, basically, there's no unified hole in the working class. I don't know how we get beyond the psychology of the door closing. Dr. King was headed in that direction with the Poor People's Campaign, for sure. So, Max, I'm not sure what I'm asking here. Maybe this is just food for thought. Maybe I'm just more pessimistic than you. But I believe the hill is higher than we think. I'm under no illusions, Todd, about the size of the hill that we have in front of us. I also fall into that Chomsky camp that is just under so much fire these days, and I don't know why, about climate change. Chomsky has been saying for many, many years that climate change is the single biggest existential threat, which is why he considered Donald Trump to be the most villainous character in modern history, because he was accelerating the potential for mass human extinction. So that's one of the reasons, Todd, that I think that the Hill is indeed so high. To your point about the working mass, I definitely think that one of the things that we're working towards on this show is trying to find that connective tissue, trying to find the arguments and the policies and the legislation that would be a no-brainer, that would unite the working class. And that's why I have such a problem with the way that we package it and the way that we promote it in the Democratic Party, as an example. I think we missed so many good opportunities by trying, you know, shooting for the moon instead of just packaging up really smart bills. That's going to be once again the thrust of the episode that we have coming out this weekend. And so the hill, if you try to jump it all at once, is too high. And that's why we need to take very small but extremely deliberate steps that build on one another to help us kind of get up the mountain. Because the closer we get to the summit, the more we can imagine ourselves kind of seeing over the top of it. But I, I agree with you that the there is something still missing in the left-wing narrative that unifies everybody. It should be climate change. After last week, it should be guns. It should be things like student debt cancellation and you know refinancing. It should be all of those things. The, I think the issue on the left is, again, when you lead with the heart, and even when you lead with the heart with the mind appended to it, there's so many things that we know that we can and should be getting after that we just fall down in paralysis. So we're we're kind of working through it as well. We're just, we're, we're talking it out. I think that is, if anything, probably the most illustrative comment of UNFTR that we've had, which is, you know, what is this thing going to be? And uh, we're not pessimistic we, because we can't lose hope or else, you know, we should just stop doing what we do. But I think you've really struck a chord with what is going to be that one unifying thing that allows us all to rally behind it. And if we go just back a little bit, honestly, it is. And there's another comment on this later from somebody that's been going back and forth with us. Remember the idea that populism isn't always bad. That populism, just because it's associated right now with somebody like Donald Trump, doesn't mean that a populist movement with somebody like Bernie Sanders is toxic on the other side. There's good populism and there's bad populism. Somehow, we have to be able to retap into that energy that Bernie Sanders was acquiring before he was kneecapped by the DNC to, to get to rally all the troops behind something that works for quite literally 99% of us. 
I always feel like when I transition into a new email, like, sounds weird. Because I just, like, sit there silently. And I'm like, okay, moving on. I need mm-hmm. more. You need more transitions? Yeah. I'm going to be like. How about amen to that? Now. Yeah, brother. Is that good? Sure. Okay. So, unfucking Phil sent along some resources for our future unfucking of healthcare and also said, really appreciated the college debt episode. When you're not making me fuming furious, the clown's in charge. You make me hopeful for this world. There you go. Yeah. So, so that balances Todd a yeah. little bit, right? Thanks, Phil. Now, Brian is a Wisco fucker. Head on over to uh, McFleshman's. Sit down. Talk to whoever's sitting at the bar. Never know. Maybe you'll run into uh, Nettie or Knudsen or Alex, right? Run into Knudsen got a little falsetto. <laughs> run into a, a, a Wisco fucker over at McFleshman's and, and have a make sure you have an, an Uber or a Lyft on the way home after if you've had one of our unfucking stouts, of course. Yeah, maybe have something else. It's not really stout season anymore. Uh, okay. I mean, you do you. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no season that I can get through a full unfucking stout without needing an Uber or a Lyft. That's for damn sure. Even if you're at your own house. Seriously, I need, I need an Uber bedroom? to the living room. <laughs> so Brian said, one item that is a challenge for me is realizing the disparity between tuition program costs and the world of work salary outcomes for some positions. Yes, yes. I don't think we can talk enough about how employers use degrees as a way to gatekeep and as such force people into taking on debt to work for them. Max made me get a PhD to be here. Yeah. You're I'm welcome. drowning in debt. <laughs> you're welcome. And it was in veterinary sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Just because your dog was sick. Just to, you know, and so you can create a whole world of vegan dogs. Oh. He's just in bed and then he got up and started barking. Shh. What? So I agree uh, wholeheartedly with the sentiment. We actually found that clip of the former Merck CEO and IBM CEOs, probably the only instance on Unfucking the Republic that I can imagine ever quoting a former CEO or anybody associated with Merck about that very topic. And the fact that, first of all, we need to get rid of degree requirements. There's a, a really great movement And this doesn't work across the board. And I'm not saying that this is real world policy, but it can be real world policy for more jobs than one can imagine. The movement towards blind hiring in terms of like all sort of pre-requirements to get the job. Just see the person that's applying for the job for what, who they are, what they can bring to the table, how they behave, what their work ethic is, what their commitment is to it. Now that obviously there are some jobs that require a degree or an advanced degree. You don't want somebody walking off the street applying for a nuclear physicist job because they have a really good, you know, sunny disposition. But for so many jobs in this country, it just should not be a requirement. And because we have these automated filters now at a lot of the big companies that look for certain algorithmic notes to determine whether or not an applicant can even be seen by a human at some point, it's a really you know, deleterious trend to the workforce and to the country as a whole. There are really qualified human beings out there that maybe just don't have the requisite education according to some phantom false metric, but they would be really great in the workforce and they deserve a shot. Blind hiring in terms of characteristics, in terms of profiling, in terms of ethnicity, even names, 
background, where they came from, certainly getting rid of any sort of uh, criminal background checks and profiling in that way is also a really healthy movement towards getting people into positions where they can improve their station in life. And yes, this whole idea that we're going to require advanced degrees and education for people that are only going to be able to have, for the example that they give in the emails, you know, 40000 in debt at a $29,000 salary. Well, it's madness and, and you're going to be living this life forever. So I come back to what can we do? What should we be looking at from a policy framework? And to me, the yes, debt cancellation, you're going to be hearing about it. They floated a trial balloon, by the way, over the weekend, about $10,000 with means testing and ex exactly what we thought that the Biden administration would do and exactly the opposite of how it should be rolled out. But if we're going to build on even that nonsense, we should be looking at a wholesale refinancing of all student debt. It doesn't make any sense to have 6.7%, whatever the prevailing student debt rate is, and with origination fees to have debt at over 7% because that interest is always accumulating even while you're in school. And if you're accumulating 7 point something percent interest on top of your debt, you're never gonna get ahead of it unless you're coming out with a six figure plus salary. And then you come out, even if you have that $100,000 job, but you're sitting there with you know $100,000 in debt to get there, and this interest continues to compound and you're paying it out over 10 years and then you refinance it for another 10 years. Why would we frustrate your ability to enter the savings universe so that people can save and get ahead and enter home ownership and all the other things that come along with it? Refinancing to me is the one piece that every policymaker is missing across the board and it has to be talked about more and louder. So there you go. Uh, they close out with y'all rock and i believe that y'all rock too now we also had something from stephen jay what did stephen jay say actually before we get on to stephen i wanted to jump back to what you're talking about with hiring and meet you where you are when we use blind and and, and deaf and and those type of words it can be ableist language so i like to use either unbiased or inclusive hiring and I think there's a lot of facets to it. So for people who maybe do the hiring in their company, or at least the vetting, which is something that does fall under my purview, typically, there's levels to it because you read about Google where there, if you didn't go to like an Ivy or MIT, you're not going to get hired. So there's inclusive hiring when it comes to not gatekeeping schools. And then there's also, is the degree required? If I'm hiring, let's say I'm a, I'm a designer. So let's say if I'm hiring a designer, I don't really care if they went to school, just care that they can design. So if you have skills-based jobs that they have the skills, but not the degree. And then I think there's an even further one, which is like what Grayston, the, the B Corp does with open hiring. So, I mean, they, they hire basically, they have a tremendous commitment to hiring where if you need a job, you basically get put on a wait list. And the next time one opens, like you'll get a job, no questions asked, and they'll train you. And obviously that's not feasible for every business, but there is something to consider in regards to training. So is this a job that can be taught? I mean, if you're running Excel files or you're doing stuff that's like a learned skill, you can invest in somebody who maybe wants to switch careers or didn't have the chance to go to college. So 
So this isn't pushback. This is trying to trying to find the right word. I like open. The reason I like blind, even though it's ableist language, and would want to find a word that conveys the same message without using ableist language like that, is that it indicates some sort of absence, like taking away, like inclusive to me rides too closely to what is in everybody's minds of affirmative action or no, I have to go out and be diverse in my hiring and inclusive. And all of a sudden it becomes this like, well, okay, so what does that mean for this company, for this position? And it, in trying to train companies and people and executives and hiring managers to think about this, I like the idea of elimination, of subtraction somehow. That So that idea of blind hiring where you're you're not seeing all of the things that we may so we have we all have unconscious bias, right? Mm-hmm. So a name. There are hiring managers all over this country that will immediately have a bias to it. It is what it is, right? Right or wrong. So when I say blind, it's like that that subtraction, that elimination. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't need to see your name. I don't need to see your schools. I don't need to that to me is like inclusive all of a sudden takes a conversation somewhere different and all of a sudden has these like Human resource managers. Yeah. Or, you know, well, oh, I have to have more representation from these particular groups. Like, well, you can achieve a lot of that through the elimination. Like, I I just feel Yeah. So, ah, ah. mm. Yeah. It's anonymized anonymized hiring. Yeah. There are softwares that do it. But again, a lot of you're relying on AI. It's just, I mean, this is a, a whole complicated other rabbit hole that could talk for a while about, but. You're trusting a computer to basically not have bias when all of the AI algorithms and software that we have are maybe more biased than humans themselves because they're just machines. Well, and, they rely on human inputs. Yeah, to get exactly. Them too. So, yeah. So <laughs> that's it's not easy. No, I, I, I think it is worth saying that. Like, this isn't like an off the cuff. Oh, you have to have better hiring practices that are you know more inclusive and anonymized and. Actually, you have to work at doing this, and which is one of the things that you've done in our organization is you've worked like really hard to implement these practices. And we see that they don't always work at your, you know, it's not like you just set it and forget it either. Like our biases come through in so many ways that you don't even think about until you really start thinking about this stuff. And it's a fascinating subject, but it's not, it's not easy. Yeah, I can say from an anecdote, I was looking for a candidate. I had a bias towards something in their profile. And I was like, uh, am I sure? do I want to put this person through? And I said, okay, that's not fair. I have, I have my own personal bias. And I put them through and they're a strong, successful member of our team. This is the person that had the, uh, what was it? The twenty Trump twenty twenty email. Oh yes, of course. Yes. No, that's something I I can strongly <laughs> I will uh, my own confirmation bias on that one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was something silly. Things don't define people, even if it's in their past. You know, I'm trying to to not divulge too much, or I guess maybe I'm trying like not if to. If you knew that I was a Republican, <laughs> wow. would I have made it through your screening I process mean, on, to if, even host this show? For well, for that one, well. Previously, I know you too well at this point, but no, that's a great example of like, that's my intrinsic bias of like, I don't want to work with somebody conservative, but that's not fucking fair. So, you know, and again, like 
I'm implicating myself, but sometimes I see people, if I'm hiring someone who has like a super like religious background, they worked in a bunch of churches, my my bias sometimes says, that's not going to be a right fit. And I said, who am I to judge that? I don't know this person. It could be a Jew working in a church. It's not impossible. You know, it could just be how, how they ended up and then their experience took them somewhere. So to be clear, though, we have a one Jew policy and you've. <laughs> yes, I've satisfied. There, yeah, I right? checked the box. Yeah. Good. Um, and also in re- in regards to what you all mentioned previously about criminal backgrounds, there is a movement called Ban the Box, mm-hmm. which is to the box on applications to check if you have a criminal history. Because if you did your cares? time, you did your time. Yeah. And then also there's a whole bunch of laws out there that aren't necessarily just. Yeah. I if someone if if I knew someone had an arrest for weed possession, I would hire them. Because <laughs> exactly. he got hooked hook your up. own confirmation bias yeah. coming out again. I would hire Robert Durst. Okay. Is he a singer? Robert, Are you talking about the serial Fred killer? Durst. Oh, Fred Durst, right. Yes, yeah. Robert the Fred Durst. Durst, people like less than the other Durst, right? Uh, I think he gets hated for, like, like ironically. You know what I mean? Oh, like... It's, he's from Limp Bizkit, so... Like, the, what's that other band that everybody loves to hate? Insane Clown Posse, right? That's what we Them. talked about it? No, uh, but there's another... Oh, my God, it's not coming to my mind. Creed. Creed, yeah. Or Nickelback. Nickelback! Nickelback! Yeah. Yes, all the above. All the above. <laughs> all right. Should I sing Rockstar? No, absolutely not. I'm through standing in lines to clubs I'll never get in. Oh, here's one for you. Yeah. <laughs> What, for a transition. Oh, Stephen right, Jay. Steve, back to Stephen Jay. <laughs> so Stephen said, thank you for the episode on student loans. It was very interesting, and I unfortunately don't foresee Biden doing anything to solve the issue. I grew up in Delaware when he was a senator there, and I still remember the nickname for Biden was the Senator from Bank of America. Something else that I think would be worth a good unfucking is how our country treats people with disabilities. And I agree with that. So part one, I'll take. Part two, you can take. Part okay. one, lest, lest we forget that... The credit card companies are not what they are today, if not for dear old Senator Joe Biden. Hmm. Joe Biden did more to promote the egregious behavior from credit card companies than quite literally anybody else in America. That wow. was his one what of his Jennifer sad Garner, legacies. Though? Uh, not as a spokesperson, I'll give you that. Her and, her and Samuel right. L. Jackson. What's in your wallet? <laughs> not in not in that sense, but his record speaks for itself, and it's been it's been well litigated. But that is what it is. On the second piece, a good unfucking is how our country treats people with disabilities. Can you pop off for a little bit on that? <laughs> sure. I don't even know where to begin. Well, uh, I'll tee you up because Stephen Jay talks about things that we. I think don't normally consider disabilities because they don't necessarily present visually in this country, in addition to all the other ways that we fail persons with disabilities in this country. Yeah. So you're referring to invisible disabilities like mental illness, dyslexia, ADHD. But yeah, so there are lots of different stats you can source from. I mean, the one people use a lot is like one in four Americans has a disability or it's like one in five adults. You know, there needs to be updated data. That's another story. But we have a large population that is consistently neglected, mistreated, wrongfully terminated. If we want to go back to employment, not hired at all. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into Stephen's personal anecdotes, but he lays out situations where he was 
I mean, quite deliberately discriminated against for having one of these invisible disabilities for really no good reason, except that it just didn't match up with the company's policy and they couldn't see their way around it. Right? Yeah. And unfortunately, accommodations departments, labor departments, they don't do as much. We're in the United States. Things vary around the country, but there's not tons of legislation other places either to protect people with disabilities. That's a huge movement, obviously, because if, if it is, let's say, one in four from the CDC, think about that. Think about one in four. Count whoever's in the room with you where you're listening. Count the cars on the road. You know, it's, it's fucking crazy. I actually had a conversation with another unfucker recently who suffered an injury and became disabled. And chronic pain, not to mention expenses... So if you are disabled and you are being discriminated against hiring because of your disability, so you can't get a job, but you have tons of medical bills and you have no protection or little to no protection, it's just a recipe for fucking disaster. And Well, it's also a good intersectionality story for us to always pursue. So whether I'm, sh- I'm confident we actually will do something on persons with disabilities in this country. And, and by the way, the ADA did a lot in the physical world. If you're old and as old as I am or older, then you you remember that this world was really not built to accommodate physical disabilities. And it still isn't sometimes. And we've come a very, very long way and it's still not enough. So now you think about in the service economy, the web economy, the internet economy, where people have different requirements, have different needs, and their issues are now presenting differently in the world that is preventing them from accessing different parts of economic mobility, the intersectionality of, let's say, childhood education, because many of the cognitive disabilities that present later in life as a problem in terms of employment or you know, just being a functional member of the upward mobility of employment, early Quote intervention, functional. right, early intervention actually mitigates a lot of that in childhood education, except that's not a place that we invest in this country. We can think of it, as 99 just referenced, in a healthcare perspective as well. What is on label? What is covered? What is not? Insurance companies are smart. They're crafty. They know that a lot of mental health services can get expensive and are required for a long, protracted period of time. I mean, years and years and years. Or forever. Or for life, right? So not covering those or saying, okay, you'll have your first five counseling services covered but that better result in some sort of medication that will then be covered, but only 60% of it will be covered out of pocket, but no other mental intervention services will be covered as part of that. So it's a healthcare issue. It's a socioeconomic issue. It's an education issue. It's a workforce issue. It's a workforce issue. So it's all intersectional in the way that we think about it. So whether we're unpacking it on its own, which we will, Understand that it's also there. It's a baseline problem that presents through so many of the topics that we cover. Yeah. And especially right now, I mean, we're living through, in my lifetime, probably one of the worst time periods. Just if we take all the news out, we're just COVID, period. This is a terrible time, especially if you're someone predisposed to depression. It affects every aspect of what we just said. It affects work. So even if you don't have something, early intervention can't catch situational depression. Right. Well, we know by the numbers that so we we passed a million deaths in this country from COVID. Mm-hmm. We also know that we had the highest 
overdose rate that we've ever had last year as well. I think in 2021, we hit our peak, right? There's nothing that suggests that that might slow down. No. We'll see what the numbers come out to be. And then also the other issues that are presented in uh, higher suicide rates among adolescents, things like, I don't know, school shootings, like other things that are presenting throughout society that are all back related to not dealing with the core fundamental issues of mental health in this country. And that is not to say that gun violence or things like that is nope. a mental health issue. That's not where I'm going, yeah. right? As you heard in our topical side grade. Side thing. Right. But you also can't dismiss that it is part of a broader issue. Don't lose the plot on this thing. We're falling down in so many different places, and it does require a coordinated effort to support our children. They need to be brought up in a less toxic and healthier environment. And that's everything from not letting kids grow up in food deserts all the way to making sure that we have the same mental health services provided in school districts, even if they can't afford them. There are ways to accomplish this that come through smart government programs and funding. We just, we're just so used to trying to find that bullet, that one Band-Aid, like, okay, well, if I just fix that end of the symptom and, and stop the bleeding there without diagnosing the root problems. Yeah. Anyway, great suggestion. I appreciate that being brought up. And uh, let's move into Miss Kitty 420. Hey, man. Yeah. 420, bruh. Gross. Sorry. Uh, your last episode on student debt loan got me so twisted up that I had to write in. One of my dearest friends, early 60s, full tenured professor, head of her department, and currently a finalist for a dean's position, owns more in student debt now than the amount she originally borrowed. How did we get here? My husband and I visited Costa Rica in September of 2021. Besides being stunningly beautiful, extremely friendly, and ecologically focused, they offer free education through PhD. Why don't we want an educated populace capable of creating solutions for the pressing problems? Yeah, so preach. You're preaching to the choir there. You are, you're hitting it right on the nose. You use Costa Rica as the example. We used a lot of the European countries. We had some of our European friends write in and say, you're, you, you're all bonkers for not seeing this as a human value. And it gives me an opportunity to once again, bring it back to Uncle Fuck Nugget. Fuck Milton Friedman! Who was there at that moment when we were trying to decide what education was gonna mean in this country. And we, instead of seeing it as an investment for people, we saw it as an investment for an individual that should then be paid back. And that is just a corrosive way to think about it. So part of shifting the narrative on student debt is to go back and really examine why. Why we would want people to even incur debt. And I'm not even saying don't have debt. If you want to attend a private college and again, if you want to take on debt to get there and you can handle it and do it, that's a choice. But for public institutions and state colleges and community colleges, it is an absolute crime against our population that these things are not free, especially when we are the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. So now let's get into some general feedback. Celtic Apache weighed in, said the origins of the word Willamette aren't exactly known, but it is likely an English version of the word Wallamt, which means water and is the name of a river near Oregon City, Kalapuyan, which is the tribe that largely inhabited the area along with other tribes. 
And actually, we have a voice recording that we're going to play from Celtic Apache. Love hearing the voices of our unfuckers, especially one as wonderful as Celtic Apache. So here we go. Hello, UNFTR. Hopefully this sounds okay as I'm recording it from my phone. As someone that grew up in Oregon, hopefully I can clear up a few of the recent pronunciation issues, which honestly have been quite comical and add to the charm of the show. Slight side note, I am not a native Oregonian, as I was born in Idaho and currently live in Colorado, but I lived in Oregon for the first 28 years of my life, so hopefully I am qualified to help. Many of the names of places in Oregon are either directly from Native Americans or Americanized versions of those words, Willamette being one of them. The Tillamook Cheese Factory and the town of Tillamook, which sits in Tillamook County, being another. Anyone familiar with the Portland area should recognize words like Multnomah, Malala, Clackamas, Tualatin, Saniam. All of these are either native tribes or words in the languages of these tribes. Hopefully this helps, and I would be happy to offer any pronunciation help that I can in the future, from the West in general, but especially from the Pacific Northwest. And just to show that everyone has quirks in their local areas, I have family in rural Washington state that pronounce their state as Washington, and family in Missouri that pronounces their state as Missouri. Overall, just keep doing what you're doing, and I'll be tuning in to see what comes next. Good stuff. We'll leave Celtic Apache right there and uh, go over to Nathan Surst. said, I love the point your listener made during show notes regarding those of us in red states who will simply take any Democrat to at least see some level of change. You beat up the Democrats so much, but now more than ever, we can see the stark difference. I know you hate Pelosi, but she's not putting assault weapons in her campaign ads. My ask is to please do a call out for Beto O'Rourke in your show. I've never heard you mention him once. I know he's a long shot, but really Texas is only chance to have any form of real change. I donated to Jessica Cisneros because I agree she's good, but her impact is far less than someone like Beto. I suspect you will lump him with the establishment, but you do live in New York. So I don't know what the general response was to Beto O'Rourke interrupting Abbott's press conference but I found it wholly distasteful because by politicizing that moment, he allowed them to say, don't politicize this moment by shoving his face into the camera and trying to make it about him in that moment, you know, like hold the press conference right down the road and do other things. It gave the right more fodder to say, see, the Democrats always politicize this thing instead of letting them just choke on their own fucking words, because that's what Abbott could have and should have been doing, because now as more and more details come out, it just shows that they don't have an answer for this. But if you get in their faces in an environment like that, all you're going to do is help the right further entrench themselves in their positions and say, what an asshole this guy is. And it completely shifted the focus away from what was fucking going on. I'd rather you don't watch that goddamn press conference than go interrupt it and then all of a sudden make it another trending news story. Now, Beto O'Rourke on his own, I mean, in his, (laughs) we saw how he flamed out in his presidential bid. I'm not sure how much substance is really there. He's a likable candidate. He's a likable dude. And will he have my full-throated, wholehearted support to run against somebody like Greg Abbott? Of course, no question. And if he can make it through and raise the dollars and becomes a darling of Democratic fundraisers around the country, have at it. I don't I don't know how this is going to come out or this is going to sound. I don't care as much 
about governor's offices as I do the state legislatures, because the state legislatures to me hold a lot more sway over certain policy measures. And that's where Democrats can do some good work because that gets local committees, state committees involved, and also winds up being part of the larger gerrymandering district drawing that is so important to informing the congressional maps. The governors themselves, like historically in Texas, the governor is a very weak position. Now, Abbott and Perry did a lot to consolidate some power underneath it. But do I think that Beto O'Rourke is going to go in there and transform energy policy in the way that we need it transformed? Not really. Do I see him partnering up with the legislature in Texas to pass any sort of like state level health care reform or abortion reform or be able to actually carry the water on on the death penalty or any other measures that the state is directly responsible? Probably not. But am I going to root against them? No. No, I just don't think it's as important as maintaining a progressive majority in Congress and fighting like hell to get progressive senators elected. To me, that is job one because, and and yes, this is from the comfortable seat of a blue state, but let me tell you, New York doesn't lead. We don't lead in shit in terms of progressive reforms. Like even, you know, Andrew Cuomo, who held himself out there as a progressive was anything but. My current governor, who's running for her first election, you heard my take on her in our native episode regarding the Senecas and uh, building the Bills Stadium. That's why we call her Chalkel. Like, these are not progressive people. And I'm also, I'm over it because I, I just want to overtake Congress. We're out of fucking time. I'm not a state's rights person as much as I would like to see a stronger central government led by progressives in order for us to really get the reforms that we need. But it doesn't mean I'm going to say I don't want better or work there. Fucking we put a defensive Gavin fucking Newsom in its own episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you can't be a bigger douchebag than Gavin Newsom. So I'm not where like a, a Chris Hedges is where he simply does not accept the lesser than two evils argument. I am a real politique person that can accept that argument in the absence of the ability to do better. It's where we have the ability to do better, like a Jessica Cisneros campaign against somebody like Henry Cuellar, that we absolutely must do everything that we can to pull all the oars in the one progressive direction that we can. So I'm with you, Nathan Sirs, and I am acknowledging my blue state privilege, but also realize that my state ain't as blue as everybody thinks it is. What do we do about this disparity that's emerging? We're not going to stop shitting on Pelosi. No. So how do we not... (laughs) The word coddle came to mind, but that's obviously... (laughs) I don't... I'm not saying, you know, from W. Jeremy D's email last week and Nathan's email now. They don't need to be coddled, so that's the wrong word. But I... You want to yes and these these listeners, right? I mean, or you want to no and them? Middle ground? I want to maybe, maybe, because I can only theorize, but I feel like who you are and your beliefs. I mean, obviously, this is like we're getting to like the butterfly effect. If you lived somewhere else, would you be the same person? Whatever. Right. But like, 
I feel like you would hold these beliefs whether you were in a red state or a blue state. I think you would actively dislike or like the same type of people. So I feel like it's similar to when we talk about Obama or Buttigieg, people come out of the woodwork or, or our regular listeners who write in often and say like, hey, stop shitting on these guys. It's all I have. But do we have to think that way? Why can't? It's so hard because you, you live somewhere you feel so fucking hopeless because everyone, all the government around you sucks. As we said, you can't just get up and move because that's not how life is. But isn't the point of having a Senate, having a Congress, having a government is that it is our government. Yeah. Obviously. It's the- easier for me, by the way, to shit on a Buttigieg because he was going for the highest fucking job in the right. land. And it was a complete shill. Yeah, of course. For the conservative Democrats, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think you're you're making the case even for a higher moral imperative for us to flip and hold Congress in both houses Mm -hmm. and keep a Democrat in the White House to to push for these measures, because now we're not just battling the states, we're battling the Supreme Court. And this is a generational Supreme Court. So we need to we're going to need to codify some things into the fucking Constitution, for Christ's sake, if we're going to hold the line on certain values that we have. So I guess I, I guess in my own way, we're also advocating for a, yeah, I hear you, but this is more important. Like, yeah, okay, so yeah, getting progressives elective is is great, but if you're in fucking Texas, I got to go for better or work. Good on you. Like I said, we went for Gavin Newsom, right? Because they didn't want to see some conservative talk show host take over California, the the most liberal legislative state in the country, right? Mm-hmm. So we're always going to make these sort of conciliatory framework in our arguments while we're still fighting for the greater good, which to me is codifying the progressive movement in this country, not just on numbers, because we saw what happens when a, a Brown versus Turner, you know, in Ohio, where Brown is, is claiming that, that she's a progressive because, you know, nine days before the fucking primary, she joins the caucus, right? Mm-hmm. And then votes with them most of the time, which presented a real pickle for the CPC. Really interesting stuff. So not everybody that's associated with the Progressive Caucus is going to be a true progressive. So I'm not just looking at those numbers. I'm looking at the qualitative figures behind those numbers as well and acknowledging that, yeah, we might have 96 progressive members in that caucus, but how many of them are really Earl Blumenauer? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we got a lot of work to do on the federal level, and this is a national show. So a Jessica Cisneros adds another little piece to the national puzzle, even though her impact is just in the small district in Texas, right? Making sure that a, a Salinas wins in Oregon is in a brand new district, by the way. Oregon. Oregon. Oregon wins there, right? Like that adds another layer, another piece to the puzzle. Whereas I got to tell you in Texas, like have at it, have it out, get involved. And if Beto's your guy, then fucking go for it, right? Because maybe Beto will be a bridge to someday having one of the state houses turn blue. It's a long shot, right? But who the fuck knows? Right, but what can we do as a show, as a collective, to, I'm going to say appease, but again, that has a negative connotation. I don't know what, what a better word would be like. How do we make it sting less when we shit on these people who are some other people's only hopes? Because saying, you know, we're talking long game. I'm short yeah. game day to day because we're we're not going to stop because if they're doing bad shit Pelosi sure she doesn't have automatic weapons in her ads but she is endorsing her incumbent who is 
anti-abortion. Right. So, okay, we're not going to stop shitting on her for that. And I'm using her as an example because Nathan did. But it extends further. So what do we do today? It goes back to something that I probably overused, which is like these two ideas can live together. They can they can be in the same in the same mind, which is we can say a Pete Buttigieg does not represent the progressive values that we need at the top of a ticket. And also we're going to need a better O'Rourke in Texas because at least it gets another blue member there and takes out somebody as destructive as an Abbott. Those two things can live together and we can still criticize better O'Rourke for kind of being an empty suit candidate. Like, what is he? Or criticize a Pete Buttigieg who is extremely destructive to any progressive values, right? Despite how he holds himself out there. So all of these things can exist together. And it comes back to what the other listener was saying about, well, what, how do we unify the masses? What is that message? And the message really is we have to start naming the bad guys. And we're not name doing and shame. name and shame the bad guys. And we haven't done a good enough job of that. And also, we can say that some of our theoretical good guys have carried the water for the bad guys. We're all so mad at each other that we're letting that small slice, that libertarian oligarch, get away with murder through so many invisible mechanisms to the general public that all we see and all we talk about is the end result, which is to have us argue about the identity politics relative to these issues that are only supporting a very, very small segment of the population. So I'd encourage everybody to go back to our two-parter on Libertarians Are Exhausting to look at where the roots of all of this shit is and who the real bad guys are here. Because I would much rather be sitting in a position where the country is moving forward and then arguing with you know our listeners about how Better O'Rourke as governor of Texas isn't doing enough to move the needle because the national progressives are further ahead of him. So come on. I would much rather be doing that rather than, you know, shitting on Democrats in a position of authority right now that take money from lobbyists that don't have the courage to introduce or back very sensible legislation, that don't have the ability to constantly bring up make sense legislation for a vote to show over and over how shitty Joe Manchin is and how shitty Kirsten Cinema is. Just bring the bills. And then every one of you go on television and be like, I wanted to help you with this one provision, but these two people stood in our way until everybody understands it over and over. Because right now there's a lot of people thinking that Joe Manchin is a hero. And I'm talking about people that are even moderate Democrats that think that Joe Manchin is preventing us from getting too far ahead because the narrative now is that government spending on poor people has led to inflation. How the fuck did we lose that narrative? I mean, seriously. And that's the stuff that gets me incensed because it's like, they're so much better at the messaging and we're st we're all here, you know, crowing and braying about, oh, this, you know, this person versus that. We all have to fucking do better because they're winning on narrative all the fucking time. I'm not even sure what I'm mad at anymore. I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, I'm mad at the whole fucking situation. Why don't you save me from myself and take us into Cynthia G. <laughs> okay. So Cynthia G said, Recently, a friend posted on Facebook a link to a site called Red Wine and Blue regarding national troublemaker training. Michigan Senator Mallory McMorrow is going to be the, quote, trainer on a session this June 6th. I just wanted to share this with all of you in hopes you might find this worthy of sharing with the rest of the unfuckers out there. 
This isn't just a Michigan thing. This appears to be focused for women to rally forth for the midterms to fight back on what the right is doing. In short, I really hope this is the Mothers Against Drunk Driving Group for Women's Rights and Gun Control. But I am wondering. Still, for those unfuckers wanting to join something but can't find anything local, this might do for a substitute, and they might learn how to organize something on their own. I'm signed up and ready to go. People can invite friends or others that are like-minded, and I don't think they're going to cry foul if a man signs up, you know? All right, so I know nothing about it, but it sounds like it's an awesome thing. I went to the website. Mm -hmm. It looks looks pretty legit. Didn't you know? I did a cursory glance because I learned my lesson from Nettie. <laughs> and um, yeah, I can't speak to the content and the the presentations, but you know they're not like a sham group. <laughs> and okay. so go to where do people find red wine? Red wine and blue. Yeah, they have a website. I'll link it in show notes. Okay. And uh, Cynthia, after you attend, write back in and let us know how it is. Love it. And we'll we'll use your recommendation to further endorse. Good deal. Now we have a bit of poetry from Pete M who said, I wrote the words below about a year ago today before listening to UNFTR, although I've since gone back to listen to it from the beginning almost up to the present. Thank you, Pete. I suppose I'm actually a pitch fucker as I've been a pitchfork listener from the start. So here we go. I had to cut out some of it because it's, it's lengthy, but I wanted to get to a beautiful part at the end and we'll just let it stand on its own. If we instead recognize that all of us are socially dependent, in fact, on a good day, gloriously entangled in a magnificent world of production, trade, gifting, collaborating, and even competing that somehow manages to make enough of the necessities of life for us all, if we admit that everyone both takes and makes, if we can agree that everybody deserves enough, maybe we can take the next steps to tune that world in such a way that more people can enjoy its benefits and achieve their full potential to participate in it and contribute to it. But I don't think we can do any of that until we break up the false idol of self-sufficiency. How might we achieve that? Again, I'm going to let those words stand on, on their own. The only thing I'm going to say relative to how we achieve that and the idea of self-sufficiency is to revisit those two libertarian episodes and look at where that false idol narrative began. This idea of American frontier spirit of self-sufficiency really interesting stuff as to how that got sort of inculcated into our into our national sensibility and our, our national concept of ourselves. So really beautiful words. Thank you for that. It actually, these words themselves are actually just kind of beautifully sum up everything that we've been talking about here so far, which is like, you know, if we all just had enough, right? If we can all wrap our minds around these ideas. We're going to take a stab at a name. I'm going to say it's uh, Spigwa. Uh, Native American Differences response to show notes on May 25th, 2022. So first of all, to this listener, if you could maybe send in a voice memo for the proper pronunciation of your name, I'd be very grateful to that. And I'm just going to, again, another long email, and I'm just going to go down to the bottom of it. This listener is responding to the question that we fielded in show notes about how one would actually even be able to tell if someone was a native person anymore. And we got into, uh, well, I got into a sort of a protracted discussion about how certain ethnicities present and how we can't take anything for granted and sort of the historical nature of how, again, from a presentation standpoint, natives in this country have been through force assimilation or other means don't look like we might think they do. And Somebody even today in this day and age asking that question shows that we have a long way to go. Anyway, this listener ends with, after more consideration, I realize many people would not be able to tell the difference because 
many possessed preconceived ideas about Native Americans, most likely mired in race purity concepts and fossilized cultural standards. After mulling over the original question, I wondered what a white person is anyway. Must they possess nation-state citizenship? What language should they speak? I've been to Europe, South America, the Pacific, and all over the US and Canada. I talked with many people lacking melanin during my travels. Are these the real white people? Or is the concept much more complicated? Once again, if you doubt that we have the smartest, coolest fucking listeners in the podcast universe, you are wrong. You are wrong. We have the best listeners. Speaking of that, what did MH have to say? M wrote in about last week, we talked about Kendrick Lamar's new album and a specific song on it. So M said, I'm a transgender woman. I heard the Kendrick Lamar song off of a, quote, recommendation from someone on Reddit. They mentioned how they cried listening to it, so I thought I'd give it a listen. Though I didn't have the same experience, I was moved. It's a powerful song, and I appreciate it. Felt like being seen by someone who wasn't trans or queer. I do understand how some, even many in the LGBTQ community, especially as T's, might be disturbed by it. It's a difficult song. They all have a right to those feelings and to express them. Those are valid takes. So... Yeah, we asked for other feedback because, like we said, it's not our not our thing. But we we opened the can, so we should yep. we should continue to you know hear all the hear all the things. I love it. I love it. And the only place I landed on it is I love working. I'd rather work things out through artistry than through yelling at each other. So I think it's led to a at least a nice discussion among our listeners. And again, keep the door open to any feedback that people have about not just that song, but just about the topic in general. Written about any songs you like. There you go. Just tell me your favorite. Yeah, just don't shit on Billy Joel. Now, Rafe Raff from Down Under said, Now, to undermine my argument a bit, I would also say that if the only social problem we have is people feeling entitled, so Rafe Raff is talking about the sense of entitlement, I say good. If that's one of the only things that we have to worry about in politics, that'd be a great step forward. Maybe then people would advocate more for their own working and living conditions and not feel like they have to take shit lying down because there's, quote, no alternative. I'm going to let that stand where it is as well. And uh, why don't you take us over to Nick L. Nick said, I want to shine a light on the fuckery going on with the state teachers' retirement services in the Midwest. I'm not a teacher myself, but my wife and sisters are. These pensions have been overseen by hedge fund managers who pay themselves six-figure salaries with massive bonuses, while retired teachers had to fight for years for one cost-of-living raise. It's a long story, but the good news is, at least in Ohio, that the teachers were able to oust the STRS board members in a recent election despite a huge disinformation campaign by the OEA. Pay attention to this sector over the next couple of years. First, many people I think would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but you would be upset by how managers are chosen for pension funds. There are some guidelines in place. There are certain compliance and regulatory guidelines in place about best practices and disclosures. But private money managers, this is the white whale. To get a pension, if you are a private money manager, if you are a wealth manager, or you know, even and that, by the way, could mean that you are an office for one of the big banks. You could be a UBS private wealth manager, JP Morgan, whatever. Getting a pension is the white whale. Getting your investments into one of these. If So again, if you're a hedge fund managing a pension, that's just fucking madness and that should be outlawed. But you'd be surprised at, you know, how, <laughs> how informal maybe some of the process might be based upon relationships. A really great pension 
with great oversight will be in very, very secure, stable, index type of funds with very long track records and as, as little volatility as one might imagine. But there are people that play a little bit fast and loose. The reason I say pay attention to the sector over the next couple of years is that for most money managers, it was hard to look like an idiot over the past decade. Almost everybody did really, really well. Now, I live in a state that has probably one of the biggest public pensions in the country, if not the biggest, that's New York. And we have a controller in the state who took over from a very, very corrupt controller prior. And this particular controller, his name is Tom DiNapoli, is maybe the most honest public servant that has ever held a position in public service. And we are very, very lucky to have him. That's not necessarily the case in pensions across the country. You've got state pensions, you've got union pensions, you've got private pension, you've got so many variations on this, and you've got money managers biting, scratching, clawing, and doing everything within purportedly legal means to attract one of them. And if you want to increase your assets under management, your AUM, you nail a pension and you are gold. Where those investments go and how that money is managed is tricky. Again, it's been easy to look like a genius over the last decade. But finding returns right now, finding safe harbor, ain't that easy. And there are people that who are going to see the value of their pensions slow down or decline over the next few years. And I think it's, from an investment manager perspective, going to separate the wheat from the chaff. So interesting place to be looking. I appreciate that comment coming in. And maybe that tees up something in the future about pension fund management and how many safeguards are or are not there for those and what we should be looking at from a regulatory perspective. So getting into the next one, the pronunciation of my name is not really important. I often call myself George or Gary to English speakers to avoid the topic altogether. Some English speakers say goat, which I am quite used to. So this was us struggling last week with gout, gote, uh, Gautier, who I think was the guy with that song, right? Right? What was that song? Somebody that I used to know. Somebody that I used to know. Well, this is Goat, as in the greatest of all time. So Goat had an issue with us, and we cleared it up a little bit. And Goat just wanted to double down a, a little bit with a perspective that I really appreciate. So let's see. The point of the message was talking about those people. Right. Talking about like, how could people vote for somebody that does something so dastardly or somebody that we're so aligned against? And we got into a, a big discussion about that. Here's Goat's clarification that I want to bring up. You have a two party system. Both parties quite corrupt. The tendencies we discussed were damned up for years until the levy broke. Your country is more polarized than over here in Europe because your capitalism is that much more extreme, leading to worse results for large swaths of people. I'm comparing to Europe generalized. Most of us have a multi-party system where parliament has five to ten parties and smaller and more fringe parties hold seats. Therefore, many countries here have experienced the rise of the populist alt-right over the decades. Trump and those who try to play the game are more extreme, but for the most part, it is a quantitative and not qualitative difference. For me, the forces and trends that lead to non-hateful, less bigoted Americans voting Trump at all are quite similar to what I have seen over here in Norway for the past 40 years. There are plenty of people who are quite decent, who vote for or have voted for extreme alt-populist right 
They're not deplorables, not very bigoted, not hateful. It's just extremely important to acknowledge and understand this because the right rhetoric and policies, you can succeed in flipping a lot, quite few of them directly over to progressive thinking. This is what could have happened in 2015 if the DNC hadn't stolen the primary from Bernie. So there's a couple different things at play here. One is we clarified that we were just having a general discussion in the context of some really horrific shit and saying out loud, like, how can people fall for this? How can they vote for that? How can that not supersede all of their other personal economic interests, like whatever? We weren't blaming or shaming anybody for voting for Trump because it was going to give them an advantageous tax policy or whatever it was. But after a while, when things start to rack up and you see just overtly racist policies and tendencies taking a hold and misogynistic language over and over and legislation that leads to, you know, women's reproductive rights being taken away or uh, the election stolen fraud. Like after a while, like, Jesus, how do you support still this person? But we weren't talking about how can you vote for a Trump in an election cycle like a like a 2016. The interesting part that I that I wanted to key in on here is the two party system that Goat is talking about versus having candidates. And I want to push back on something that he said, and that is that there are decent people in Europe that will vote for an extreme alt populist right that we know is racist and has, I mean, you're talking about the extreme alt populist right is in many European countries is outright horrifying compared to what we have here. But they represent an extreme minority in a parliamentary system. And the fact that a fascist party, a literal fascist party, can actually have representation in a parliament abroad doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to have sway over national policy, but they're represented. That's not the case here. So in, in a weird way, like we have this bifurcated populism that's like you are either for this populist person that's doing a lot of shitty things or this populist person is doing a lot of great things. And I agree with one thing that Goat said, which is a Trump populist voter in 2016 who feels totally disenfranchised from everything related to their lives and feels not part of the the economic mobility or system in this country could have and would have just as easily voted for Bernie. I believe that in my heart, which is why I believe that Bernie would have been president in 2016, that he that he would have been a better candidate than Hillary Clinton, who represented the establishment that people did not see themselves in anymore, that there's a core populist tendency to vote for somebody that is willing to say, fuck this system, it's not working. That's how populism manifested here in this country. And that's why I've been a Bernie supporter and remain a Bernie supporter to some degrees, assuming we can find somebody who's not in their 80s to take up that mantle. Yes, I'm being ageist. What I don't understand, GOAT, is how you can then apply that same logic to somebody in an extreme alt-right parliamentary system who has other options somewhere along the political spectrum. So personally, I'd like you to clear that up if you don't mind sending another email in to follow up on that because I'm not sure I, I agreed with all your logic until we got to that point. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's perfectly fair. I don't, if it's equal to the alt-right, you're not a decent person. I'm pretty comfortable saying that. Right. Like here, you could say, I mean, you could actually twist yourself in knots to be like, oh, I hate his misogynistic racist tendencies and how he treats immigrants at the border. 
but I am for loosening regulations. I am for tax reform. I am for, you know, allowing businesses to do better. And I want to have a trade war with China because I think they shipped our jobs overseas. And like, you can pile all those things together and we can have a discussion about whose populism is better. But if you have 10 choices in front of you, and one of them is, I would like to expel all people of color from the country. I am a fascist. I believe that we should have hard right-wing policies in, in everything that we do. Women should stay home. Whatever those fucking policies are, and, and you ignore the other nine, then you you really are not a great person. Yeah. Even, even saying that I can, and I, I said it myself, and being like, you know, I'm less mad at people who are doing it for financial reasons. I sort of don't agree with myself saying that because I'm almost more mad at them because I'm like, oh, so you just don't care about people. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, mm, yes, I so do. So your, your fucking wallet outweighs my human rights. So. Except that. Okay. So, and I'll give you the ultimate yes. And I, I, in my heart, obviously completely fucking agree with you. Is your Republican going to come out? No, but I'm what. What that ignores mm -hmm. is the fundamental reality of how people vote and have always voted. That's true. That's what I'm not trying to change. Yeah, but what I'm not trying to change with this show is why people vote, what they vote for, what you we've been can't extract the two th these days. No, what I'm saying is that it, so much of this is in the nuance and the messaging, and this is why Republicans beat Democrats in the big stuff all the time is because they're able to. You know, the less nuanced they are, the easier it is for people to wrap their minds around because people are busy. But if people understood that it will be economically beneficial for you to have an educated population, that it will be economically beneficial to you to not have billionaires. But I'm talking about those people. I, I am, too. I do believe we're saying the same thing. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but... I don't think that... Wow, man, speaking for me, revolutionary. I don't think that you and I are going to ever try to conquer why people vote for what they perceive to be their own self-interest. What I'm trying to tackle with this is those perceptions, not their self-interests, to demonstrate that they actually have the script totally reversed, right? And if we have only a two-party system in this country, then the moment that people are feeling the most disenfranchised from their own personal, you know, gains, their own personal, you know, needs, is the moment that they're going to go for whichever populist is available to them. They're going to vote against the establishment, not understanding that the very things that they're going to vote for are actually going to contribute to them continuing to do worse. That humane policies are also economically more sustainable. But I, f I feel like you're talking about the, the uninitiated, the uneducated, the apathetic. I'm talking about the opposite. I'm talking about the one percenter who is voting that way just not in my initial argument when i was talking about people who like why that was more an emotional just like angry but right now in in this in what you're positing we're, we're not going to flip the people i'm talking about but do you see what i'm saying I like do. those people are voting they're not they're voting a hundred percent for themselves to keep what they have and to keep people down but we could also say that of the, what was it, 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump again in uh -huh. 2020, right? Who were able to bear witness to all the bullshit, still fucking pulled the trigger for them. Our 75 million- We need to take the gun metaphors out of our vernacular. Sorry. 75 million of our fellow country people 
deplorable? Or are they still seeing something that they don't see themselves in that other message? This should have been a, a fucking landslide both times, right? If you are just looking at it from a pure policy measure and a, a human perspective, like you said some really horrible shit about people. Are 75 million of our fellow country people actually still, as of 20, as of 2020, were they still buying in to all that shit? The people that still say they support this person after January 6th and support that person in particular, I think we could take them off the table. But that doesn't discount Republicans who held their nose and voted for this person because they are buying into this narrative that the Democratic Party does not represent their freedoms, their liberties, their economic self-interest. No matter how fucking perverse that is, we're losing that messaging battle. And so for me, it's just all about showing the light on the things that you think are the most damaging are the things that are ultimately going to make you thrive. That the, dare I say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where's your boat? My boat's like fucking sunk right over at the at the local harbor here. Oh, yeah? Wish I had a boat. No, I don't wish I had I a boat. I gave you a boat. Where is it? Why isn't it right here? It's my desk. I don't. I don't want a boat. Actually, here's here's something. I I think most people with boats longer than let's say twenty feet are dicks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless you fish for a living or whatever, but I'm you know we're in a coastal area, so I'm, I'm just gonna say it. They just seem like more work than it's worth. Well, that's for damn sure. Yeah. What are the two best days of owning a boat? First and the last. <laughs> Salt life. That guy got arrested for murder or something. Ooh. The Salt Life guy? For real? Oh, yeah. Good Lord. Or attempted murder, something. One of them. So if you get a Salt Life sticker. My favorite is when I see Salt Life in, like, the middle of the country. And I'm like, how'd you even hear about this? Do you have an ocean? Like, if you if you fish on that boat or you sail, you fucking, you know how to sail, you're not a douche. But if you've just got, a, like, a big power boat and you've got a fucking, you know giant Trump flag hanging off the back. Well, yeah, let's, I mean, I don't want to isolate our boat fuckers. <laughs> our not-a-fuckers, not a, not a not-a-oceanif- Oh. Sea fuckers. Sea fuckers. What if they don't have a sea? They don't have a lake. Look, I will say I have a family member with a pontoon. That's fucking lit. You're saying that's not a boat? That's not like a, that's not like a... a well, then you need to be more specific with your words. You're right, you're right. You're right. Gosh. I need, I need time to work through the boat stuff. We need to get ableist language, gun language, boat stuff. Just you do love a sea metaphor. Let me just let me be me, ninety nine. No, let I have a problem with every part of you. Well, do you have a problem with what Fairy J said? Yes. Tell me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fairy asks, and this is gonna be at you, <laughs> as I don't fucking know. I can tell you right now, I don't fucking know either. Okay, well, if anyone knows, Fairy said, "I learn and enjoy very much from the show." I'm wondering if you could possibly. Have a show on Nietzsche and the right. I'm trying to find out why the right can use Nietzsche in which ways it does. So I have zero schooling in in the classics in this way. I actually know someone. If I phone a friend when yeah. when when she hears this. Okay. Good old one oh one. Oh, one oh one? One oh one philosophy major? Studied philosophy and classics. Oh shit. Yeah. Well double major. And and let's put this to one oh one. Okay, and yeah. we'll come back later with it. 
So, uh, but also opening it up to any of our no, uh, philosophers. Only my sister can answer. No, your sister, your sister, first sister? and foremost. Your sister, sister, first and foremost. Uh, but any on any, listen. If we have any uh, philosophers out there that wanna that wanna weigh in, by all means, bring us to church. I like the the philosophy song from Monty Python. Do you know that one? No. Like David Hume could out consume. I think I made you watch it once. It's fun. Have you? But haven't you canceled them in your own in your heart? I just think John Cleese is old. <laughs> needs to shut up. If you don't know anything about anything, stop talking. Yeah, that's fair. Let's go over to Facebook. Okay. Because we've got some shit to get through here. So much for being economical. Yeah. Well, that went out the window when you took know, 15 know, minutes know, to answer Pethan's email. At the very beginning. Yeah, I was watching the timer and I was laughing to myself. Fine. It's cute. <laughs> you just can't help it. I can't because the questions are so good. I know. All right. Go ahead. So, Carolyn S. listened to our recession episode and said, I'm no economist, but the podcast was clear and concise. Gave me perspective on what's happening with today's economy. Thank you, as opposed to uh, a review that we'll, we'll get later that uh, <laughs> does not hold that uh, opinion. Cam J said, this kind of sort of dovetailed with Best of the Left's 1491 episode. Mismanaging capitalism can lead to fascism. I've been of the mind that we're looking more and more like Batista's Cuba, and that's not a good trajectory to be on. Call back to our Cuba episode if anybody wants to check that out. And by the way, always great to hear from Cam J. Thank you, Cam, for weighing in. Now, over on the Twitters, say it loud. I'm not. I won't, I won't say his words. I'll let the clip speak. Hmm? You know what I'm talking about. Well, you have to say his name for the clip to be well, invoked. I'll say his name, but I'm not going to say the You can say clip. his name out loud, but you can't. Right. You can't utter the words that many, many of the faces will put in. Yes. Right. So Will Watkins Ford. I am William Wallace. <laughs> said, great show this week from UNFTR. A great show this week from UNFTR, Reinflation. With such a complicated issue like this, I feel that we as a society need to be making sure the poor and middle classes have the strongest foundations to weather the ups and downs. Love it. My brain stopped working because it's 90 degrees in here. It's so hot. We're we almost do? there. We're almost what there. What do we do? I, we're almost it's there. It's really bad. I know, I know, and you're I wearing know. long sleeves. I'm so hot right now, but I don't. at least I don't have your hair. That's true. Got Shirley said uh, regarding our topical cream episode at UNFTR Pod, Dears Trio, I would love a history lesson on the NRA and its effects on our politics, past and present. I guess it's inevitable that we're going to have to do a full-on fucking of the NRA just really off the cuff here. Got Shirley and everybody else interested. You know what? There's a lot lot of really good stuff that's been done on it out there. And the thing that always strikes me is how things move in such a short period of time, how we can go from Reagan and Bush Sr. shitting on the NRA for advancing the cause of assault weapons being in every home to where we are today, where it is just considered a God-given right to carry an assault rifle. I mean, it's just, it's pretty wicked, so. They uh, talked about guns in the Bible. Yeah, it, except the point that they didn't, like so many other things in the oh, Bible. Oh, I've right? never read it, so yeah. <laughs> I'm just going off of what I've been told. Oh, you, didn't you have to read half of it? <laughs> I didn't read any of it. Wait, uh, what is this that people are, well, a few, a few listeners have been accusing you of being funded by Putin. Yes. Um, what is this with him doing funding the NRA or something? Is that a thing? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to call him. <laughs> Hello, it's Vlad. Hello. <laughs> this is Vladimir. Um, we're not funded by Russians. And by the way, neither is Hedges. 
He worked for RT. He said that very publicly. He didn't accept money from the fucking Russians. And then he criticized Russia on RT. Someone said he sold his show or something. He didn't sell his show. That's why he has a fucking Substack and he's hawking for $5 a month like we are, like everybody else. I'm just saying, man. <laughs> you get a lot. People, they think that you love Putin. Yep. Well, I don't. So. Well, but you want him to to have Ukraine. I I don't want him to have Ukraine, but I want us to give him something else to appease you him. You want him to have Crimea, even if it leaves him. Don't want him to have Crimea. Stop doing that. <laughs> I'm just I'm not done this. I'm reading what Crimea. our this is what the Stop listeners it. said. Stop putting words in my we mouth. We love you, listeners. listeners. I'm just fucking with you. No. Well, W. Jeremy, you know D. who you are. W. Jeremy D. What did what did he, what did he or she say? <laughs> what did W. Jeremy? Did, uh, Stop saying he or she. I know. What is this? Is, yeah, thank you. So hot. Jabri, now I'm fucking dying. W. Jeremy D. said many of the reasons for gun ownership are false targets, protection, Second Amendment, etc. And by arguing against these, we have no impact on people's true feelings. The real reasons are trivial, fun, power, and fellowship. Gun owners are embarrassed. It makes them resistant to change. So much that Jeremy said right there is just true and and we'll let it speak for itself ob sandy said how many millions of children has kissinger murdered he absolutely does not value human life agreed and if uh, and i don't know where the fuck that came from well okay so ob sandy i think i think ob sandy and ob sandy please correct me if i'm wrong I think obese Andy thinks that you love Putin and oh, because right. Kissinger agrees with Putin, you love Kissinger. Oh. I think that's where this is coming from. Kissinger, I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. I can't believe he's still alive. The fact that he's still alive means to me that he is the devil. Mm-hmm. And Behind the Bastards did an amazing three-part series with the guys from the dollop. That is just laugh out loud funny, and I want to throw my phone in the East River maddening because Kissinger was just that fucking horrible and was always that horrible and probably the the, the person, the least qualified person to have ever been in the positions that he was in for his entire life. Kissinger's fucking nightmare. Gave he money makes, to Theranos. Gave money to Theranos, which I love. Made the Dulles Brothers look like fucking Disney World and Disneyland. I mean... Kissinger is the Thank worst. Thank you for adding human. both Disney World and Disneyland. Well, it's the Dulles Brothers, okay. right? So it's John Foster and Alan. So <laughs> they, one's one's got to be, you know, in California. The other's in Florida. One stay worse <sighs> than the next. There you go. So okay. no, be Sandy. I don't like Kissinger. I don't like Putin. Fuck. I just don't want Ukrainians to die. That's literally, all I'm saying. Yeah, but. Even if Putin stays in power, they say, but they, if, they, you say, if they Putin say, stays in power, but no, no more, if Putin stays in power, but no more Ukrainians do die that. and they don't and they don't and they don't lose any land, I take that deal all day every day. I'm not obsessed with who's in well, power or not in power. The, the I don't say, want Ukrainians to die. Listeners say we're, they're not arming civilians; they're arming trained people. No, they're not. Well, this is what the listeners are saying. They're not. Okay. Both things can be true. No, they can't. <laughs> uh, uh, let's we're going to lose people. <laughs> we're not. I don't want people to die. I know. I don't want them to get murdered. I don't want this to go on longer than it absolutely has to because we refuse. Do you want to negotiate with a mass murderer? To get to, to like give anything. I think we should have a call. We should have them call in. <laughs> should we do an on-air debate? No. No. <laughs> It would be kind of funny. 
Let's, just be saying the same thing over and over. Let's have Putin call in. I can deb- you want me to debate him? Why don't I have a Biden and Putin debate? Hey. That's like when um, <laughs> uh, James Adomian and... Um, oh, fuck. What the fuck? Who does the Bernie impression? They did like a, a Trump versus Bernie uh, debate. It was really funny. Was it good? Yeah. Yeah? They both did like... They're like genuinely... Because they're like actual comedians, not just like randos. Oh. What are you saying? Uh, you're, do you claim to be a comedian? Never. Exactly. Okay. Um, it's now 700 degrees in here, so let's go to Instagram. Yes. So, Nebraska said the decades-old NRA-sponsored rhetoric won't work this time. We won't let it. Keep it up, you three. You're changing the world, except for the opinions of Obese Andy and our other listeners. For from your lips to obese Andy's ears. Obese Andy's ears. We're just kidding, obese Andy. He knows that. I know. I just, I just want to make sure. I don't want him to actually be. Well, I don't care if he's mad at you. I just don't want him to be mad at me. <laughs> That's fine. Um. And the Punisher wagon said, "Could it be that the right is pushing to ban abortions because they need to replace all the lives lost from their gun policies?" Hashtag replacement theory, perhaps. Crass, but. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what? not more crass than a fucking gun shooting or banning abortions. Yeah. And then Progressive Wayfist, <laughs> I think I'm saying that right, <laughs> said, just wanted to say I love your podcast. It's Thank been you. so informative and helpful in developing my progressive rhetoric. That's it. We are arming a, uh, a whole nation of polemics. And so Progressive, it's progressive.waifus, Wayfist. And they have a meme account where they make progressive memes with anime to try and reach a new audience. Neat. Yeah, so if that's your bag, check that out. Well, then we should follow that person. I think I do. (laughs) They have one of a little anime person and it says, fuck Milton Friedman. Fuck Milton Friedman! That's adorable. Yeah, let me see if I can find it. That makes me so happy. Yeah. Let's go to Substack, where our following is growing at a very nice clip. Remember that it is always free. stuff, because I took away guns and boats. Yes, and it has a healthy gait over on Substack until we had to shoot it and put it down. Mm. <laughs> uh, Our equestrian Instagram followers going to be upset. We have to remind everybody every time because I think so people are conditioned that they have to pay for premium stuff in Substack or, or premium content in other places that we are committed to always keeping every stitch of our content totally free. That's except why, our coffee. Except, well. <laughs> premium I, coffee. I can't give away actual coffee i'm talking about content i know i'm just saying right yeah it's a plug for our coffee why are you shutting me down here i'm not shutting you down i'm trying to pay my bills bro being clear that the content shall always be free of course except the content that's written on the bag of the coffee oh on the bag all of it i misunderstood you no i was talking about the coffee in general okay so you need a nap yeah substack free all the content on the podcast totally free everything coffee money coffee gotta pay for so Corey S. over on Substack, that free area that we write all the essays, said Clinton ran a government surplus from 1998 to the end of his presidency. Democrats still use this shit as a badge of honor. Corey S. is going in a very good direction here. A fiscal surplus sucks money out of the economy. As long as you can resource it and the economy hasn't reached full employment, the government should spend money to actually help people for once instead of using the same austerity bullshit they parade out every year. Bill Clinton gets no pass from me, and raising interest rates is basically just giving rich people more money. I have a feeling that Corey S. is not agreeing with me here, but correcting something that I said. If I'm 
correct on this, Corey, ask, just, just let me know. I did mention Clinton's surplus as though that were a good thing because I, I think I said ran the economy in such a way well, th- that Republicans will light the economy. They'll put it in a bag of shit, light it on fire, leave it on the doorstep. And then Clinton ran a surplus as if those two things were somehow related. I completely agree that during the surplus times that that's when we should be spending on other programs and we shouldn't be running a surplus if we can surplus cap. Basically, surplus capital means capital that should otherwise be in the system. Right. So if the if the people are running a deficit, we should be able to basically invest in them. It, it seems backwards. We went over a lot of it in our MMT episode. We've gone over it in the past. But I think I the way that I phrased that made it seem like I was a big fan of Clintonomics. We're going to unpack that in relatively short order, by the way, Corey. So stand, stand at the ready for that episode. But I, I'm glad you put that in because if I left the impression out there that I was a huge fan of Clinton's you surpluses, Clinton. then... And, uh, and his I'm glad that you said this. So there you go. Okay, so this is from our topical substack. Jimmy Q said, With Buffalo last week and the Texas shooting days ago, it's laid bare that the radical nationalist narratives are not only completely ineffective, costing lives, they are and have always been lies in the pursuit of power. White male power. Preach to that, Jimmy Q. Thanks for weighing in on substack. Snapping. All over the place. Z snaps. Mm -hmm. Z snaps. Suzanne T said, thank you. This adds clarity. Not a lot of hope, but clarity. And then Prof G said, fuck them and their West Wing Sorkin brain. Give a good speech and do nothing else bullshit. 99 Max, Manny Faces, and the rest of the UNFTR family, what do we do? Whatever it is, I'm down. You're right, 99. These septuagenarians and octogenarians have got to go. America, goddamn. A little Nina Simone call out at the end there. I like that. And uh, now, finally, to wrap Wait, things up. What do we do? What do we do? Yeah. We just we just keep on on fucking. It's a uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's the cheapest uh, out I can give you. It's called a thought terminating cliche. Nice. It is. I didn't make it up. No, that's great. Yeah. That, it's like it is what, what it was. is. Boys will be boys. <laughs> it's like you can't question it. Keep on keeping on. Yep. There you go. Yeah. And while we're keeping on. I'm going to get to coffee donations to round out the episode. This is uh, buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR donations. These are the memberships that come with certain perks, but most of it is just because people love us or they can just give us one-time tips and donations over there in our coffee jar. And we thank everybody who is financially supporting the show so that we can continue to bring you such stellar content and uh, I I guess heat-stroke-inducing show notes such as this. Joshua WM is now a member, said, love this show, amazing content without being unwieldy or obnoxious. Every episode is well-researched and thought out. Additionally, Max and 99 are open to criticism and differing views, meeting people where they are. Yeah, I will make fun of you, but... Okay. <laughs> not you, if they criticize me. Oh, absolutely. I'll bully them. Yeah, be careful. But it's only because I'm the minority here, and I get to. I'm a woman. Well, there's only two of us here. Yeah, but you're a white man. We are... You're, I'm, oh yeah? In this room. What do you get paid? I'm terrified of you. (laughs) What do I get paid or what do I pay myself? Uh, Both. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Well, let's do, well, let's turn it around another way. What does this cost me? What do I, what what do I make, what do I make from my efforts here as opposed to what goes out? What are you talking about? You're happier than you've ever been. I am. There you go. Intellectually soul satisfied. It's not about money. Now, Sarah C, who did give us money, is a member. As a former unmontafucker, Montanan, unmontucker, as a former unmontucker, 
don't know. We're gonna have to work on that. I think I think I was uh, uh, angling for Big Sky Fucker, if I remember correctly, for our Montana. Well, there's Charlo from Big Sky. Right. Who's a Big Sky on Fucker too? I assume. Right. Anyway, and current on Canucker. Oh, went from Montana to Canada. This podcast informs me and makes me feel like I'm part of the dialogue, even though I cannot vote in either place. Thanks for all you do and keep doing it. We absolutely will, Sarah C., and thank you for becoming a member. Walt H. is now a member. Amazing follow-up and show notes to the tweet I sent in reaction to the student loan episode. We aim to please. Mm. Alyssa B. is now a member. Thank you so much for doing the work, sharing the work, and supporting Native peoples. Taylor is Human is now a member. Hi, I love you guys and everything you're doing. David's now a member. Love your podcast, interesting topics, and thought-provoking. Keep up the great work. Bookstore Kim bought a coffee for you, Max. Thank you. It was so great to hear you sounding so jazzed and happy after the student debt episode. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> you said, mmm, debt. <laughs> and then Ant Proof Case, a coffee for Manny, Max, and 99. Love you guys. Someone bought three coffees and said, because you asked the hard questions, do the work so many of us don't have the time to do, and provide intelligence and funny and fucking dark at times answers, you deserve some fucking coffee. Thank you. And Nathan Surst, our serial unfucker and friend, bought us two coffees. Max, I know I often give you the rebuttals when I disagree, but this show on the guns, I agreed with every other word. Every other word? Oh, no. (laughs) We could not be more calibrated on this issue. You might want to look at South Korea. They do not allow guns there at all. Even the police don't have guns. Hunters keep their guns at the police station and have to check them out like a library. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. Can you imagine the fucking pandemonium that would ensue here if we tried to steal everybody's guns? I was just thinking about I was still thinking of every other word because technically every other word. Every other word is the word other of every other word. So, do you know what I mean? Oh, my brain just fried. Now it's it's way too hot and late in this episode to even think about that. And reviews. finally, we had two reviews. What do you think this one says? To me, it's very clear. Urban 1970 farmer? Farmer. I think. Farmer. Urban 1970 farmer thinks that this is a brilliant podcast that unpacks the issues down to the last crumpled undies shoved under the corner of any political social issue suitcase. Max and 99 are the hosts with the most, most smarts, most humor, most righteous, well-placed anger. Here's how it works. You listen, you learn, you rage, and then you donate to Jessica Cisneros. Be well and multiply. Episodes. Thanks for all you do. Does this person work for us? I love it. I know. Not to be outdone. (laughs) Recomo view. Recomo view said... read it? Yeah, okay. go for it. Basically, the level of analysis I would expect from the from any liberal undergrad in the humanities. Very few warrants for claims unless you accept their deeply conspiratorial understanding of American politics. Each episode is just 30 minutes to an hour of unsupported assertions and shallow <laughs> policy analysis. That's a great place to end. Well, you heard it, unfuckers. We don't even, we wouldn't even graduate from Recomo View's Here's university. Here's what I want to say to Recomo View. Yeah. Why do I need to have a college degree to analyze policies? Yeah, motherfucker. Right? And I raise you my useless masters, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bring it. And my PhD you made me get. That's right. In veterinary science. That's it. So if your dog is sick, call someone else. Well, Recoma View hates us, but everybody else seems to seems to like us. Yeah. I like Can't when we get a one star. I mean, don't leave us a one star review, but I enjoy them. <laughs> When they come in, but don't do it. No, don't. Please don't. My my favorite is still uh, we got a, like, and we only have a handful of them, thankfully. And we had one that was like, 
uh, the show's great, but Kyle sucks. Yeah. Or something like that. Like, <laughs> Who's Kyle? Kyle? No, oh my I mean, God, yeah, you hit the wrong Kyles button. All Kyles do suck, but. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, if you made it this far in the episode, which uh, in re- listening to it, I don't even think I'm going to make it this far in the show notes. I'll inevitably cut half of it out. Okay, good. Uh, thank you for uh, once again supporting us, uh, th- not only through uh, your comments and your questions, your amazing, amazing questions and your rebuttals, uh, but financially as well. As I said, we have a number of new things coming at you this year that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for your financial support. And we're just looking to fill up your feed with really good, high quality information. We'll see you on the weekend. As far as I know, there's no topical cream this week. Uh, because we're dug pretty deep into uh, Saturday's show. And we had a short week because of the long weekend. So uh, look, we'll see you on Saturday. That's it. Goodbye. Goodbye.